George, you want to come on up? Happy to have George with us again this morning. He's certainly no stranger to us. A few days ago, I texted him and said, Darla's getting worried about what you're going to talk about so she can pick songs. And and, uh, the title is uh, Righteous Pursuit. Certainly a fitting way to start a new year. So I'd like to pray with you and then we'll Father, thank you for George. Thank you for his willingness to come share. And now, Lord, as the word is opened, I just pray that we would hear what you have to say to us. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless the Lord. Dear congregation, I greet you in the name of the Lord Christ, especially as we celebrate God's having gifted us with a new day. Amen. He's kind. He's gracious to us. Every moment a gift. I would call your attention this morning to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 1. Now, this does seem to be mid-thought. This, of course, is the result of what John's already been talking about, so it's, it's small wonder that it would sound that we're starting mid, mid-conversation here. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Strong remarks by this brother, but apparently sorely needed in that particular time and place. Well, as we read through Scripture, we invariably notice that time and again, the spiritual reality of the differences between those who are righteous and those who are not are vividly obvious. You may recall the old story of the so-called King's New Clothes and the absurdity of his subjects who praised his new fashion in spite of the patently obvious fact that he had no garments on at all. We can pretend all we wish, but reality is plain. So it is with Christianity. 
we can play the game for a while. But in the end, our true nature shows itself, and it's obvious to the wise eye. The spiritually dead may be outwardly religious for a season and play church for a season, but inasmuch as Jesus Christ himself assured in Matthew 7.16 that false converts will be truly known by their fruit, whether good or bad, it becomes eventually plain to biblically-minded churchmen who truly are in the kingdom and who are not. Our fruit will bear us out. In our text this morning, we'll be focusing on verses 4 through 10. And John is taking great pains to make plain to us so that we may know who's really in Christ as well as what the evidence of being in Christ looks like. And in other words, righteous living. It's that latter focus, that righteous living that we're considering this morning. Notice then verse 4 as we begin. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Well, during the past century, it became somewhat faddish to assert that we're under grace, not under law. Now, of course, Scripture says as much, doesn't it? However, that was taken to a new low, you might say. And it was used to excuse a host of ungodly behaviors. Of course, whether engaging in the wrong or neglecting the right. Somehow suggesting that because we're under grace and not under law, well, then God certainly overlooks a multitude of sins. Because, of course, we're in Christ. We can just live however we wish. We have the proverbial priest to whom we can confess everything is good. But that is not at all what the scriptures teach us. What we find biblically, however, is that grace and law are two sides of the same coin. Christ seems to think so. He himself condemned people for their lawlessness. Just as a couple of examples, you'll notice Matthew 7, 23. We'll back up so that we can get the context of what he's saying. We'll begin in Matthew 7, 21. You can almost hear the conversation happening. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, that is on the final day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Strange, isn't it, that if we are fully under grace and there is absolutely no part of law that Jesus would condemn someone for lawlessness. We see as much in the same gospel, chapter 23, verse 28. giving a, we see a little bit of a clearer picture here of what was being described in chapter 7. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within, full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. There's something 
heinous to the Lord about lawlessness for outright rebellion against the authority of God himself. Fiki has said this, people need to see the lawlessness of our depravity, and that is what we are in, apart from Christ, isn't it? Apart from Jesus Christ, Scripture describes us as spiritually dead, deaf, blind, diseased, depraved, fallen. People need to see this, that they have sinned against God's holy and good law. This reveals the ugliness of sin. It's horrifying evil. Use this truth to call men to turn in horror from their sin as a gross contempt of God's goodness, worthiness, and rightful authority. You'll recall in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, There is clearly no place for lawlessness in this admonition. We'll begin in verse 13, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, again, presuming what he's already been describing, preparing your minds for action, righteous living, that calling to which each of us has received, and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Notice Peter's remark here about our former ignorance in the second half of verse 14. He's contrasting what we used to be with what we are now. Recall your former ignorance, suggesting that now you're no longer in that ignorance. You now have an understanding of the Lord Christ of whom he's been speaking. He's showing this is what you used to be. Here's what you are now. Don't go back to Egypt. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? There's no reason to go back. There's none at all. And we see a similar thought here in Ephesians 2. The first three verses. Paul's essentially teaching the same thing. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Paul's contrasting what we were with what we are in Christ. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's our old description, but it should not be what describes us now. We're in Christ. There's been a change. And Jesus says as much in John 14, 15. He briefly notes, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If A, then B. That is a pretty simple proposition for us. If A, we flip the switch up, then B, we expect the light's going to come on. According to Christ here, if A, you love me, then the natural, obvious, expected result is going to be then B, you will obey me. You will keep my commandments. That, of course, begs the question, what did he command? That's for another study. There's a lot. 
But notice also then in that same vein, the Gospel of John 15.10. John 15.10. Love to hear the sound of wrestling pages. John 15.10. Jesus says, If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. We very often, I think, because of our our humanness, want to kick back a little bit against rules. What we see as limitations. That proverbial fence there just somewhat begs being jumped over. There's something about it. It's, it's insatiable. Whatever the limit that's given to us is makes little difference. Whatever it is, we want to cross it. What's going to happen? That's how we are. And so it's normal to our experience to, to discover whatever the limit is, and we're going to push that envelope just a little bit. That's that natural rebellion in the heart of man which is the fruit of Adam's fall. Did God really say? You'll recall that conversation in Genesis, don't you? The serpent comes along, starts just asking questions. Did God really say? And you'll recall Eve, whether in a moment of nervousness or, or whatever, she ramps it up just a little bit. We're not supposed to eat from this tree. We're not even supposed to touch it. Well, God, of course, never told them that. We're not going to die. It'll be just like him. He's holding out on It doesn't take much, does it? We don't take a whole lot of encouragement to go ahead and do what we know to be passed wrong. And the result's predictable. These fences that the Lord has given us in Christ and revealed through the scriptures are not here to steal our joy, but rather they are a place of safety. That fence is a large fence. And within that fence, there's tremendous freedom. We're told elsewhere that the sun will make us free. If the sun makes you free, dear brothers, you are free indeed. There's tremendous freedom in Christ. Notice also, though, in our same text this morning, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. 1 With love comes respect, comes honor, comes a desire to please. And John reminds us in 2.3, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. His commandments are not a burden to his people. This word know, when he says we have come to know, is a word that translates with a tremendous degree of intimacy. We know intimately. We know deeply, personally, experientially. 
this is how we know that we have come to know Him. We've come to love Him. This is how we know that we've come to love Him. We keep His commandments. Well, to love Jesus immediately implies that there was a time when we didn't. If love for Him means obeying His commands, then not loving Him certainly results in not obeying. And we know this to be true. As with Matthew 7, again, I'll refer to 7, 21 to 23. Fuller text. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty. It's almost like a smokescreen. Look at what we've done for you, Lord. Look at all these great things that we've done. Continually comes back to the heart of the matter. I will declare to you, to them, I never knew you. Apart from me, you work as a lawlessness. Now, we all know from experience, don't we, that being in Christ doesn't mean that we stop sinning altogether. I did just this morning, obviously. And we can sin against the Lord just as easily by neglecting to do the right as we can by doing the wrong. We are told. The great commandment. We all know this, I expect. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our... Have you this morning? I haven't. Let's be honest. God sees it all anyway. We have nothing to hide. Hebrews makes that plain. I have not loved the Lord with all of my heart. And yet we still have breath, don't we? He's gracious. He's merciful. So we are clearly works in progress, right? We will not stop sitting altogether this side of heaven. John confirms this in the same letter we see in 1 John. Verse, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. I don't know about you, but I come to this section here a lot. This is a tremendous regular comfort. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It doesn't get much more plain than that. If we confess our sins, which of course presumes we have them to confess, and we certainly know experientially that that is the case. If we confess our sins, here's what he does. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, unbelievers are living in an unending state of unrighteousness. Being in Christ, though we continue to sin when we confess them, the word assures us that the Lord God is faithful and just or truly right and fair to forgive us. And to make us clean from these things. Be comforted in that. That's tremendous. Even all the way back in Job, there's a recognition that there's not much changes. People are people. Job 15:14 says this. What is man that he can be pure? 
or he who is born of a woman, that he can be righteous. If you're born naturally, he's saying, just like everybody is, how is it even possible, how is it conceivable that anybody can be pure or righteous? Fair enough question, for we read in Psalm 51.5, David says, I was conceived in iniquity from the moment of conception, life, and that passing on of the sinful nature from the parent, which goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. You'll recall Adam, of course, made in God's image, right? And then we read shortly after that, they had another son, Seth. Notice what the Bible says. Seth was born in Adam's image. Implication, Adam's sinful fallen image. And we all receive that. We all receive that, which is why Paul would say in Ephesians 2, for you were dead in your sins. Thank you, Adam and Eve, though had we been there, we'd have done the same thing. One old theologian had this to say. God asks only that we love him with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength. No one can deny that this is more than reasonable. Do we do it? What do our hearts devote themselves to? Do they long only for God? Are they loosened from earthly entanglement so that they can rise to the heavens? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we do. Isn't it wonderful when we do? So, yes, we all continue to sin. But that's not really the point of what John's getting at here. Notice again what he's saying. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That little phrase there, practice of sinning, that's the translator's attempt to describe what's being said here in the original text, which is a habitual practice. And it also is implying an unrepentant, casual, happy practice of sinning. In other words, the activities of an unbeliever. For who can be in Christ and not feel that sting of remorse for sin committed. That's what we call conviction, which, thank God, is the blessing of having the Holy Spirit within us. What is conviction? It's a nice, tidy little term that we have to describe that, that, that pain, that sting, that, that jab that we feel when the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God within us is letting us know what you just said, what you just thought, what you just did is completely out of place now. Let it go. Run away from it. That's, of course, what we mean by repentance, isn't it? To turn and make a beeline in the opposite direction. Run far from the path of sin. Because, of course, we read in Isaiah that that path of sin just robs us of the joy of delighting in the Lord God. So, this 
phrase, the practice of sinning, is emphasizing that ongoing practice, which is one uh, said is that willful, habitual action of sinning. It's not an occasional act, but it's a lifestyle. So isn't it plain then that the point of the passage is that a lifestyle unconcerned with holiness and unrepentant is completely contrary to God? Contrary to being in Christ. Jesus says this in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We cannot serve the flesh and serve the Lord Christ concurrently. Consistently, unrepentantly, it just is not possible. Sin, here and there, of course, we're still in the flesh. We've not been glorified. We're not in heaven yet, brothers. And so this is, this is the condition natural to man. We still sin. And an evidence of being in Christ is we sin more than we truly want to. James 4.4 4 tells us, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We will generally speak, act, and live like the friends we keep. Whether friends, uh, relational friends, or you want to speak as broadly as we will begin to act, speak, think, and live like what we read, what we watch, where we go, who we spend time with. Bad company corrupts good morals, the word tells us, for a reason. Verse 5. You know. You know he's reminding them. This is not new information. You know that he, Christ, appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In case we need any further rationale for why sin is so despicable, John reminds us that Jesus appeared and died by implication to take it away. That's why he came. Now, he came for many reasons, of course. But why he would humiliate himself by removing himself from his rightful place next to the Father to take on flesh and weakness as we experience and willingly lay down his life for us if it wasn't necessary. Clearly there was something that only he could do and it was severe enough he's willing to do it. In other words, the whole reason why he came to earth beyond the ultimate of glorifying God was that through it, that is the incarnation, was to take away sin. You'll recall in Hebrews where it's reminding the Jewish people, as if they needed any, of the, the many sacrifices they had long been practicing in obedience to God. But it makes an interesting statement that, the, that the, the blood of bulls and rams could not take away sin. Well, then why on earth did God require that so much blood flow from the altars if it was not taking away sin? I mean, isn't that a pointless activity? It's just the slaughter of animals and it's not, it doesn't appear to be really accomplishing anything. Why should he require that? Recall it also reminding us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We give sin a nice, tidy little term. It's, just, it's, it's, it's compact. It's, it's neat. It's sterile. It's comfortable to sin. It's a 
catch-all phrase. It doesn't sound so bad. We understand that it's such a wicked idea that the Son of God had to be slaughtered because of it. So this begs the question, if Jesus humiliated himself by leaving his throne in glory, how can his people, in union with him, continue to live in it? answer, of course, is we can't without making an absolute mockery of the Son of God himself. Ray Van Ness said this, It is impossible to walk with Jesus while supporting what he came to destroy. Furthermore, there is no sin in Jesus, so his people should give no place to it either. You see, in our minds, we can hear that. It makes sense to us. We understand and might, in fact, agree. Yes, I agree with that. And yet, in practice, we do something altogether different very often, don't we? And which is why, of course, God in his wisdom and and knowledge would say something in Scripture like, for the one who knows to do what is right and does it not, to him, it is sin. Which has already been described as lawlessness. You see, it gets dim. It gets grim, doesn't it? Well, I didn't mean much by that. That wasn't so terrible. Is it sin or is it not? If it is, then it's lawlessness. It doesn't make any difference. We want to put labels on things. We want to put degrees on it. Well, I wasn't as bad as he was. I didn't go out and murder somebody for crying out loud. Sin is sin, and we're not minimizing the profundity of murder. But we're saying that sin is what Christ came to do away with. The big ones and the little ones, because it's all rebellion to him. Do you see the connection between John and Paul's points, especially of Paul, on the nature of the new covenant and our sanctification? Well, what is God's will? Well, Scripture reveals many aspects of his will. One of them we see in First Thessalonians being his will is this, our sanctification. What's that? Our being progressively made more holy, which Peter's already described as God demanding that he be because he is. How on earth do we promote holiness in our life, mind, words, when we continue to ingest a diet of moral filth? You say we would guard our children, children from all hosts of wickedness, of sin, of moral decay. And yet, this is deeply personal, so I'm not saying anybody's toes without having stood on my own. Is our own television not the most wide-open door in the house to a world fraud? We generally leave that door wide open. In our house, I will not have my children using the word stupid. In their mind, that's a dirty word. I realize in other homes it's not a big deal, but in our home it is. Each family must do right the way they believe before the Lord God and be faithful to it. And trying to teach them the principle of using your mouth to be a blessing to other people, not a curse. And yet, some of the most innocent appearing programs on TV introduce things that would completely undermine that. With them. You know, I like to share things from my childhood with our children. I think this is great. My kids can play with some of the same toys I had. They can read some of the same books. I've kept my G.I. Joes, by the way. I've got these from 83, 82, and they're still playing with them. Quality. They're still using them. And I have fun with that kind of a thing. It's just daddy being a geek. But 
I think of some of the programming I used to watch as a kid, too, and my memories of them are a bit different from their reality. And I've put on some programming from those days for my kids to watch and have sat there aghast at what I'm hearing. What are we teaching? What are we teaching? What are we allowing someone else to teach? Righteous, holy living? Or do we say one thing at church and do another thing at home? How can we, who are in union with Christ, continue to live as though we are not? Notice verse 6. No one who abides in him. That's, that word abide, that's suggesting you've set up camp. You're staying there a while. We're setting up our tent. We're driving in those stakes. We're not, this is not overnight. We're staying. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, we must admittedly be careful with this text. There are some who have suggested that evidence of your truly being in Christ is you no longer sin, which obviously chapter 1, verses 8 through, 8 through 9 that we read would not support. So it must mean something else. The word will never contradict itself. So what is John saying here? Again, we're seeing this language of abiding and keeping on sinning. As some reference, in John 17, 3, Jesus prays this to his Father. He says, and this is eternal life. Here it is. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice the emphasis on the word know, that we know. Hosea 2.20 I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, says the Lord, and you shall know the Lord. That is Yahweh, God's personal name. As for a more New Testament reference for something a bit more closer to our experience, notice Colossians 1. Looking at several places so we can get an idea of what's going on here. Scripture agrees with itself in Genesis to Revelation, so it's going to tell us the same thing in different ways. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. Notice the kind of things that the apostles pray for, for the people. <clears throat> Paul says this, And so from the first day we heard, that is, we heard a good report about their, their life, from the first day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Okay. Now, jump forward to Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1. Verses 2 and 3. 2 Peter 1, verses 2 and 3. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things 
that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And then chapter 3, verse 18, 2 Peter 3, 18. Here's his final admonition in closing this letter. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. In the 17th century, there was a very popular little phrase used among uh, one segment of Christianity that referred to head, heart, and hands. I found it to be helpful. Their point was this. Get the, your thinking right. In other words, biblical. And your affections will be rightly oriented. And once your thinking and affections are right, then the outwork and your action, your living, your behavior will be right. You can't mess up that order. Don't follow your heart like Disney tells you. It's the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? You don't want to follow the heart. The heart we have a heart problem. That's why we need Christ. Get the thinking right from God's word. Get your affections right from this right thinking about who the Lord God is. And your behavior will be right. That calls for us to spend an inordinate amount of time in God's word. To heed the admonition... Daily time, feasting in the green pastures of God's Word. Notice Jesus' words in John 15:5. He said this: "I'm the vine; you're the branches. Whoever abides in me." And I in him, there's fellowship there. There's, there's, there's communion, there's union with Christ. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Just like you can't whack off a branch from the vine and expect it to keep growing stuff. Apart from Christ, you can't do anything that's going to be eternally satisfying or pleasing to God. You must stay connected to Christ. You know, I think the old phrase we heard for several years, what would Jesus do? Well, what did he do? What did Jesus do? What does he command us to do? Because his commands are not burdensome. Remember, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. His way of living, his call for us, is not only doable in the spirit and in word, but it's also appealing to his people. It's the way he would have us to live. That's that healthy fence that keeps us safe and content. And, of course, we read Paul writing to Timothy that godliness with contentment what he's calling us to. Being satisfied with all that Christ is. I think he also said this. The hand of faith graciously and unconditionally rests upon Christ and his righteousness alone. Faith lives out of Christ in whom all of our salvation is to be found. Make much of Christ your congregation. Read Christ. Pray Christ, sing Christ, speak Christ, all things Jesus Christ. There is no other way. But notice the operative phrase in verse 6 of our text. Keeps on sinning. This reminds us of verse 4, doesn't it? 
while we continue to struggle with the reality of, of remaining sin within us, we've been set free from slavery to it. You recall earlier noting that if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Christ, through, through salvation, frees us not only to slavery to sin, but he frees us to righteous living. It's, it's, you can think of it as a bit of a double freedom, not only to, to uh, keep us from, from being obligated by our sinful nature to sin, but now we're free to do what is right. There's real freedom in Christ. And so we've broken our fellowship with a sinful life, no longer having it characterize our life. In Psalm 5.4, we read, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And this, of course, reminds us of what we read, that in Christ there is no sin. Notice now as we continue, verses 7 and the first half of verse 8. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. While the subject matter that John has for us is weighty, it's, it's consequential, and sometimes it's hard to hear. What he's using here is a term of very fond endearment to us. When he says little children, John is not being condescending. He's using a term much like when I refer to you all as dear Know of any closer to I recall in Bible college, my dad going to one of the teachers and saying, Dr. Thomas, how would you have me refer to you? I wish to be respected. Dr. Thomas telling him, why we refer to each other as brother so-and-so. Well, I, I say that. That's what I do since I've come back to Missouri in the South. Every man's brother and every lady in Christ is a sister. That's what you do. I came up here and brought it with me. I don't know if it's proper up here. But there, everybody's brother. Brother so-and-so. And you don't mean any slight bite if, they're, if they've got a doctorate. You just, they're still brother. And it's a good point, isn't it? Because it reminds us that we are brothers in Christ who is our older brother. It reminds us we've been adopted into God's family because of Jesus Christ. It's nothing to do with us. We're just to be the gracious recipients. And as much as we're in his family, now there's a new way to live. Well, having appealed to his readers is dearly related to him. He introduces a strong warning against deception. And he does this by asserting that righteous living is the direct result of being connected to the Lord, whereas consciously, consciously sinful living predictably results from being connected to the devil. That sounds like very strong language, doesn't it? But you'll recall our being told, you cannot serve two masters. You can't have it both ways. We can't have our cake and eat it too. It's one or the other. You'll either love and serve the Lord Christ or love and serve Satan. That's the implication. Some will say, well, I don't hate God. I just don't love Him. Well, if you disagree, you will love the one and you will hate the other. If you have no love for Christ, in God's estimation, hate Him. 
he says. You'll recall Philippians 4.8. This is a well-known text. It's beautiful. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers. See, brothers, he's doing the same thing that John was doing. It's a different language. It's the same thing. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about this. Noticing a pattern here of thinking, knowing, knowledge, trying to get through to us. Get our thinking right. And then this will be right. If I think in a godly way, my affections will be for godly things. And when my thinking and my affections are for godly things, then my life will be too. Also, Galatians 5, 22-26. There's another one. They're related. But the fruit of the Spirit, that is the, the result, the, if you have the Holy Spirit, here's going to be the evidence. Here's going to be the fruit of it, the, the result. It's inevitable. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Saying, look, if you have the Spirit... This fruit will be evident. Notice it's not fruits of the Spirit. All of these, to varying degrees, should be present as evidence that you have God's Spirit within you. And if you do, then let's walk in this way. Let meaning, In other words, let that be characteristic of our lifestyle. And yet we've already noted, haven't we, that it is common to our experience that we still sin. So what are we to make of this then? We still sin, but we've got God's Spirit, and we're supposed to give no place to sin or the devil, so how do we reconcile that? What we find in here is this. What characterizes you? Not what is your every single move, but what characterizes you? A love for the Lord God? A desire to please Him? A desire to grow in your understanding of Him and your affection for Him, your love for His people, your service within His church, to be a blessing to other people. Does this characterize you? Is this your base attitude? That comes by having the Spirit within you, which comes from being in Christ. And those occasional sins still happen, and they're a reminder of what we've been saved from and what we're being saved to. But on the other hand, 
what characterizes us, that we may do this, we may show up to a service, but we really don't give much of a care or a thought to such things. That our the way that we live is just pretty much whatever sounds good to us, and feel good to it. Whatever, what characterizes us. That's what we're after. That's what we're looking for. Notice that the Philippians and Galatians text here, kind of thinking, are only possible through our adoption in Christ. If you are in Christ, then these should characterize us. These should be attractive, appealing to us. You'll remember from Isaiah 66, God says this, Heaven is my throne, (laughs) the earth is my footstool. So what kind of place are you going to build for me? All these things my hands have made. This is the one person I'm going to look to, though. This is what I'm looking for. He who is humble and tried in spirit and trembles at my word. Do we tremble at God's word by looking to it in love and reverence and seeking to learn from it and be obedient to it? And that would be the kind of person God's looking for. What characterizes you? Finally, verse 8. And not. Second half of verse. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes the practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. That is, you can't keep sinning and be happy with it. Look, we, why do we sin? But because we want to. Seriously. We want to sin in that moment more than we want to obey the Lord Christ. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. But if that's the exception, if that's not your regular course of life, well, keep reading. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the opposite would be true. Do we practice righteousness gladly, joyfully, willingly? Well, we're here, and I've seen many of your faces many times before, so that would suggest to me that there is that new principle within. There is that love within you for the Lord Christ and to be pleasing to Him, and He certainly is pleasing to you, or you'd be somewhere else right now. So it's a good sign, dear church. It's a good sign. Although sin certainly does plague our life here, and it truly affects the life of the church. Though we're saved and secure in the Lord for eternity, we still sin from time to time. Yet, Christ's incarnation, that is his coming in the flesh, had as his goal the final destruction of sin. One day, will he not? One day all things will be set right. They're not right right now, which reminds us that all has not been said and done. There's more to come in his good time. And yet that's not our experience just yet, is it? But Christ has not yet come the second time, and we await it. With John in Revelation 22:20, 20, we certainly cry out, Come, Lord Jesus. But it's not yet time. The work's not done. That's why we're still here doing this. So on the one hand, this verse functions as another statement as why God's people are not yet to take part in sin. But also it's an encouraging one. Satan may yet cause further destruction, but in Luther's words, lo, his doom is sure. Well, verse 9, we see this. 
that we can summarize it by saying that because we've been spiritually birthed by God's Spirit, we inevitably share in His characteristics, much as we naturally do with our parents here. You can look at somebody and say, boy, how do you use a spitting image of an old Mr. So-and-so? No denying that. I wish my kids looked like me. I say that. They may be glad they don't. People say they look like my wife. Okay, well, then you can tell from what stock they are, right? It's inevitable. We're going to look like someone in our family. Spiritually speaking, we do too, though, you know. We look just like to whom we belong. Who do we look like? Who do we look like? Well... Verse 10, John is distilling the point of this whole discussion as he wraps it up. And here it is. How patently obvious it is who God's children are and who are the devils. So quite simply, whoever does and does not live a life characterized by righteousness, it's that simple. We will resemble our Father. Whether it's our Father, the Lord God, or our Father, the devil. Does that disturb us? It should. It should bother us because heaven and hell are in the balance here. So, we return then to 2 Corinthians 6 from a prior discussion. 2 Corinthians 6. Verses 14 through 16a. Paul says this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, we often use this for speaking of marriage, but it's far broader than that. This is just in our dealings, right? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Nothing. What fellowship has light with darkness? None. What accord has Christ with Belial, none. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Absolutely none. There is no relationship between these two here. But notice also, chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's why we cry out, basically, be made right with God. There is peace that can be found. Apart from him, there isn't any. Be reconciled to God. We who have been know what that peace looks and feels like. We know. We know. And so we tell others the same thing. You can be made right with God. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Years ago it would have been said of a new believer that there is now a new principle of that. I'm sure there might be even be an old hymn of that. Amen.
intuitive principle within us. To be in Christ is to love what he loves and disapprove of what he does. Does that describe you? To love what Jesus Christ loves and disapprove of what he disapproves of? If so, amen. Praise his holy name for he's worthy of it. See his face. But if it does not describe you, then I, with Paul here, would implore you, call out to him, Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on my poor soul. Save me, for I have nothing. Make me clean. Why doesn't Father, you're gracious and merciful, and you've shown that even by granting us another day, another breath, and we thank you. Thank you, Father, for the joy, the privilege of gathering together with the express purpose of making much of the name of your dear Son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are patient with us, you are long-suffering, and that when we do what is wrong, we neglect to do what is right, you don't Thank you, Father, for the time we've had this morning. Lord, it's sweet. And thank you. Lord, in the coming year, please, Father, work a miracle again within us. One that causes us to love what you love, hate what you hate, put sin to death within us. Lord, well up a thirst within us, insatiable for your glory that we may open your word, see the glories in it, for we learn more of you, and that you would strengthen us by it, that our daily walk would be characterized by a desire to please you through holy living, and that you would give us such a sense of contentment, it would be contagious. Thank you for your goodness, your grace in drawing us to Christ, your mercy in not leaving us to our own ruin, your love for giving everything that we need. Lord, what we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give us. And what we are not, make us. For Christ, your sake.